Welcome to Digital First Leadership, the podcast that focuses on helping leaders and teams understand how to master the language of social media in today's digital first world. Welcome to the show. I'm Richard Bliss, the host. You're listening to Digital First Leadership Podcast. My guest today is someone who comes to us with a deep background in finance and security. David Riley is the former CTO and CIO of Bank of America, where he oversaw technology for both the global banking and global markets business, as well as supporting the office of the CFO and the risk division. David, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Richard. I'm looking forward to the conversation. As am I. David, you and I have had some fascinating conversations in the time that we've known each other. And I am thrilled that you're here on this, this episode of the show because there are so many things I want to talk about. But before we do that, let's talk just a little bit about your background because I mentioned Bank of America, but you're formerly, you also had some time with Morgan Stanley, Credit Suisse. Help the audience understand kind of your role and what you did in that and the perspective you bring to, uh, to the industry in that, in that area. Sure. Thank you, Richard. I've been fortunate enough to work for a number of the world's largest financial services institutions, Bank of America, as you outlined. Before that, I was CTO at Morgan Stanley and at Credit Suisse. And before that, I spent some time at Goldman Sachs. So my career has been within the global, highly regulated financial services industry. Everything from the consumer lending businesses to uh, high net worth management businesses, as well as sales and trading and investment banking and corporate banking. And my role has typically been to serve all of those businesses. So for example, as CTO, my responsibility was for the infrastructure and the technical services that all of the businesses around the world used. And for a period at Bank of America, that included responsibility for the cyber team. It's one thing to be in that role, but in your... In the position, Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, Credit Suisse, these are all global brands of intense importance in the finance markets. So it's not just that you had an important role, but you also played an important role in the entire ecosystem of security and data and technology in the world at large, right? Because you're talking to vendors who are coming to you to deliver solutions, solve problems, but you're also providing feedback to them as well. Wasn't that the case? Very much so. It's not possible for companies of that scale to do, and nor is it appropriate for them to deliver all of the services they need directly. And so the partner ecosystem is incredibly important. Figuring out those partnerships where you're truly strategically aligned, where your interest and the interest of the partner are aligned, those were the ones that worked the best. That may be for the delivery of data center services, network services, some cyber protection, data analysis, data security. So figuring out where that partner ecosystem plays across your strategy is key. And I always found, Richard, when a, when a vendor became a partner, it was when those interests became truly aligned. And for that to happen, I had to ensure that I'd done a good job of explaining the strategic drivers that I had to support my business. And they had to do a decent job of listening and figuring out where they could. And perhaps even more importantly, Richard, where they couldn't play. So we could figure out how to get the best from each other. And so the sum of the two parts becoming greater than the, the whole becoming greater than the sum of those two parts. Bring up an interesting uh, issue here. And that is for most salespeople or companies, they're going to be hesitant or loathe to even expose the things they can't do. Right. So how would you, and I know that you've probably faced that a lot, like, oh yeah, we can do that. Oh yeah, we can do that. What are you looking for in that partnership? When you keep, uh, you've said when the, the 
you're aligned. How do you measure that alignment? And, and what, what indicators are you using to see that? And then also the, the other question is, how do you know when somebody's calling BS, right? That, that, you can't, that you know they can't do what they're promising they can do? As a general rule of thumb, when a, a partner or before they became a partner, a vendor, focused on doing one or two things really well and didn't try to overreach, as a general rule of thumb, that was somebody we pulled closer because we knew we could not do everything on our own. Partners that were similarly aligned meant we could figure out where the synergy would really be. But similarly, the other side of that rule of thumb is vendors that told us they could do that and that and that, and we can also help you there, generally that dialogue didn't last very long and they never crossed that line between vendor and partner. The best examples I can come up with, Richard, they, they all shared a couple of attributes in addition to being very clear about what they did well and the areas where they felt they would be over their skis. They weren't ashamed about that. They didn't try to, to sugarcoat that. They were very direct about that. And that meant we could get to where they could add truly strategic value, true partnership value much, much faster. In addition to that, they all took the time to figure out what were the strategic drivers that, that we had in the team. Generally speaking, when we made a decision to buy something, to build something, to decommission something, to deploy something, there were five drivers that we were thinking through. And in almost every decision, all five of these drivers played a part. The very best partners were the ones that took the time to understand these five. And they were not particularly prioritized one through five. They were situational. So for example, Reducing expenses and ensuring that we were being as efficient as we can was one of those five. Many partners came and led with that, but that's never enough. If a cost is competitive, if a cost of, of a service is competitive, if it isn't reliable, then it isn't worth buying. And that's the second driver. Costs have to be where you want them to be, but services have to work. They have to perform at speed and they have to be consistent. All of that's great, but not enough if that service isn't delivering capability that's going to mean that my business could be armed with competitive weaponry in the marketplace. So the costs are where they should be, the service is reliable, and I'm delivering some differentiating capability so my business could win. And even when all of that was true, the fourth one was risk. None of that works if I can't manage and control all of the risks, and not just cyber risk digital risk, talent risk, switching risk, third and fourth party risk. I may be across the table from that partner, Richard. Who does the partner rely on? And increasingly understanding fourth party and even fifth party risk is becoming crucial, not just for CTOs and CIOs, but I think for the entire executive team and increasingly the board to really understand where the edges of that service delivery are. And then if all four of those things work great, the fifth, was talent. Was I doing everything I could to develop and retain the technical talent that we needed inside the company? It's never been tougher to, to hire and retain great technical talent. When I entered the industry, Richard, if you could marry technology and financial services, that was really the pinnacle. Fast forward to where we are today, that's not the case. If you're a truly excellent technician, you have so many choices. You can go to the startup route. You can go the venture route. You can go the pure play technical route. And so pulling you into financial services, we have to work even harder today 
to find, develop, and retain the very best talent. And that lens was one we'd always looked through. Great, we found a partner here. The costs are where they need to be. The service is reliable. It's great capability. Risks are understood. Am I going to be able to use this to free up resources so that my really high-end talent can be focused on other problems which really require the internal team to be 100% focused? And it's the balance across all five. As I think back of the very best partners I had, it was the ones that figured out, first understood that, and then figured out where they played. And they never needed to play in all five to the earlier part of the conversation. You'd be highly skeptical if someone said they could. But there were examples. NetApp is a really good example where they were always terrific on the cost front and always terrific on the capability front, and that's where they excelled. And that was their sweet spot, and that's why we, we grew the account over the years because they knew how to align to our strategy and they knew what they did well and where they didn't play. And there are many other, other partners that did, went down that same journey. Now, it can, it can often, that dialogue can often lead with one of those things. We can help you reduce risk or we can help you save money. But you're a vendor if you're only doing one of those five. If you play in more than one of those spaces, Richard, I think that's how you turn that corner to become a partner. And the partners are the ones you pull closer. The partners are the ones that you say, listen, I've got this other problem I'm trying to solve. I don't even know where to start. Have you got any ideas? And it opens up the aperture of the dialogue to do so much more with those partners. And I, and, and as you're speaking, I'm, I'm thinking to our listening audience, to the customers and partners I work with, you are dealing with some of the largest financial institutions in the world. But those five elements go all the way down to a small organization that's looking to hire or work with some type of technology partner because almost all companies today are becoming so, uh, digital software companies, right? They have some aspect of software that's impacting their business, no matter their size. And it, it's, it's so true. When, when I got my first CTO role, I, I went and talked to over a dozen past CTOs about what they had learned about doing the job and what, the, what they wish they had known when they began on that CTO journey. And these are the five things that came out. The thing that determines your success or the thing that will determine that you're not successful right. is the inability to control price, quality, capability, risk, and nurture the talent. Now, sometimes people use different words, but those five, large company or small company, are ones I've kept coming back to over the last 20 plus years. Now, you've mentioned a couple of times, and I want to dive a little bit deeper into Obviously, we could go on for hours talking about this topic because there's so much to cover here. But you mentioned one thing, and that is you've mentioned the term risk. Because in today's world, particularly digital risk, particularly today, is becoming at the forefront of almost everything we're talking about, whether mm. it's, it's the data risk, right? As you said, if it's cybersecurity risks. How do you, as a leader, address and deal with and approach digital risk today? So I think you have a responsibility uh, as a CIO or a CTO, a responsibility as a member of the executive team at the company, or a responsibility as a board member, Richard, to really explore the edges of where the digital risk really is and how it's being mitigated. Cyber risk of all those is the best understood and gets, an, a tr as it should, a tremendous amount of airtime in those discussions. But there are others. Data risk is one. As we embrace across all industries more 
uh, artificial intelligence and more machine learning. The models that instantiate that AI and ML are trained using a vast amount of data. The more data you can pass through a model, the better trained it will be, the more efficacy it will deliver to your business, the better results you will get. How have we thought about data access as we train all of our models? Now, typically, if we're inside a company, Richard, you or I will have human access to that data, sometimes directly to a data store or a data warehouse or a database, sometimes via an application. And the enterprise IT teams know how to handle that and they know how to manage that, the ID to the application to the data. I'm not as convinced we are as lucid on the risk associated with model access to data. Have we potentially overgranted those models with access to data? And so I think the risk to be mindful of here as the teams all work hard and run fast to deliver new capability is to cause them to pause a moment and think through risks like that. Did we overgrant access to data to train the model? Related to that, have we thought about bias in those models? Have we trained the model in a way to be perhaps biased in a certain direction, overly relying on historical data as opposed to new conditions that could occur? It's really to try and understand where the edges of these digital risks are. Another would be that third party, fourth party, fifth party risk. How can you ensure that you have thought through all the chain of software assurance to know where all of that software that you're using, where all of that modeling you're using came from? What's its chain of custody, if you, if you like? And increasingly, I think, answering what, what seems to be a really simple question, Richard, which is an extremely difficult one to answer for the technical teams is, uh, what we might describe as software assurance. How do you know when you made that change today that your software only did the things you wanted it to do? A, a bad change didn't get implemented, a mistake was, wasn't made, or God forbid, an attack had occurred, and now your software has been adjusted in a way that you hadn't planned to. I think that idea of software assurance extends to data assurance, there are two of the risks, I would say, Richard, that are emerging, that whether you are a board member or an executive team member, you've increasingly got to push the technical practitioners to explain how they're both understanding and then mitigating those risks. Okay. I got to tell you that as I listen to you, it's, it's, it's great information. But if I'm a board member or an executive, I'm feeling helpless after just listening to what you just said, because how do you even start the process of that type of now, now before I even go there, I think about um, people who have been on my show. Peter McKay, CEO of uh, Sneak, a company that is at the developer code, finding vulnerabilities as they're introduced. I'm thinking about other companies that are doing cryptocurrency security and, and, and other ones. So I see these this ecosystem seems to be expanding. Is that what we need to do? Is continue to to bring in innovation, but is it be aware of the ecosystem itself that starts to become the protection, and not try to find just those pinpoint solutions? Because it sounds a bit overwhelming in a leadership role to track down and be aware of all of this. As as companies become even more digital, the reliance on software is growing even more than it is today. Um, we've all said for a long time that almost every company is a digital company or a data-first company or a software company. Uh, it's becoming more and more the case every day. But I think fundamentally, 
if you haven't grown up in technology, there are a couple of things to keep in mind. Uh, I'm from that community, and one of the things that's true about me and my community in technology, Richard, is we are gifted at making simple things sound extraordinarily complicated and almost impossible for a regular human being to keep up. But there are some pretty basic principles, I think, that you can employ. At its core, software isn't that clever. It's a set of instructions. It does what you tell it to do. It's just ones and zeros. There isn't a two or a three. It's on or off. And so fundamentally, while the range of outcomes that an application could deliver can be vast, it is always finite. And so I think as a, as a board member or as a non-technical practitioner, individual or executive in the governance construct, you have a right to ask, prove to me that the ones and zeros only did the things it was supposed to do. How do you know that it only did the things it was supposed to do? Show me how you tested for that. Show me that you figured out all the ways something could work and all the ways something could break. I do think sometimes those questions can be a little hard to ask because they seem almost too basic. They almost seem, well, the team will have thought about that. I think they're helpful questions for the practitioners to receive because we don't always fly at 30,000 feet. The practitioners will go down a ground level very quickly in, in the pace they're working at to deliver capability. First principle questions about show me that the software only did the things that it was supposed to do. Show me what you do if that partner that we've just spent 15 minutes talking about who's delivering this unbelievable capability to you, what happens if they go away? There are a number of reasons they could go away. They could get bought by someone we don't feel the same way about. They could experience a financial problem. They could hemorrhage talent. What are you going to do when they go away? A good test is if the response you get from the practitioner team to either the question of show me that the software only did the things it can do, it was supposed to do, or what do you do if the partner disappeared overnight? If the response you get is, well, that will never happen, it's much more complicated than that, you're onto something. Keep pushing. <laughs> because right. there, that, that is what I think from a governance standpoint and as a practitioner, we increasingly need to ask those questions. I found increasingly in the last decade, that's what I was doing with my own team because they were driving hard around delivering capability. And all teams in all companies, large or small, that are delivering technology are incredibly stretched. These first principle questions, they're perfectly fine ones to ask. And if you don't get a lucid answer, keep going, because you're onto something. You, uh, David, you remind me of an old movie. It's old, not to you and I, but to a younger generation, Jurassic Park. And in the movie and in the book, it's when the, the Malcolm, the, the chaos scientists, Right, life will find a way when they they're convinced that they don't have a problem because they're measuring the reproduction. Right? Hey, look, we have all of the dinosaurs accounted for, but what their software didn't do was account for additional dinosaurs. It was only looking for have we lost any, not didn't did we add any? Hence, they weren't able to track and be aware that the dinosaur. I mean, to use a really basic example, it makes me it jumps to my mind that yeah, that was a perfect example of. Very complex software. It's a movie. It's fake. I realize that. But it was a great example of being aware of what the software can or cannot do and then proving it to me. So, you know, and I worked with a, a chief risk officer, a brilliant individual who who distilled down what his team had to do was to figure out all the ways 
that you could win and all the ways that you could lose and make sure that you had mitigated those to the maximum possible extent. And at its core, whether it's commerce or IT, I think that's our oversight responsibility. Yeah, it, it really is. This has been great for you to uh, share this. It's been deeply insightful. I appreciate you taking the time. David, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us today and diving deep into this. Uh, how would people just stay in contact with you? How would they track you down? Um, they'll find me on LinkedIn. Um, okay. David Riley, R-E-I-L-L-Y. Um, and message me on there and I'll get back to the team on anybody that has any questions or would like to follow up after this podcast. This has been great. David, thank you so much for your time. I've really appreciated it. Thank you, Richard. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Digital First Leadership, the podcast where you learn to leverage and build your expertise on digital platforms. For more valuable tips on mastering the language of social media, subscribe to our newsletter at blisspointconsult.com. If you'd like to stay in touch, feel free to add Richard on LinkedIn and join the conversation.